News, notes, and Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April 24th. It's show number 20 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great show for you. We'll talk with Todd Zola, our regular Friday Talk with Todd commentator, about aggressive fab bidding in labor, a new wrinkle on stolen bases, Occam's Razor, and more. And we have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at DJ LeMahieu, Yimi Garcia, and others. And from the American League with Jock Thompson looking at Joaquin Soria, Kenneth Vargas, and others. In our regular matchups analysis, Greg Fishwick looks at Cleveland right-hander Trevor Bauer in Cincinnati to face right-hander Alfredo Simone, and the Nationals right-hander Steven Strasburg at Miami right-hander Tom Kohler and other matchups. And in Master Notes, because you just don't get to hear me quite often enough, I'll be doing the duty talking about daily fantasy and laundry management. It's another big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Todd Zola is standing by. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday News and Notes edition, as always, our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League, and leading off, it's the National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. And it's always good to have you. Uh, Nick, I know one of your favorite columnists at BaseballHQ.com, one of mine as well, is Stephen Nickrand, who has covered starting pitchers since Bob Feller or thereabouts, and this year he's added batters to his portfolio at BaseballHQ.com. This week, he's looking at some extreme early performances by both batters and pitchers. And one of the names he found on the hitting side amongst a dozen or so is Colorado second baseman D.J. LeMahieu. Uh, D.J. LeMahieu. I always kind of like D.J. LeMahieu because I got to see him play at LSU. So uh, sort of a personal favorite, but he's off to a great start. At this point, D.J. LeMahieu has a uh, has a 931 OPS, uh, hitting 389 and, and uh, doing very, very well. And what Stephen pointed out is that, you know, this is not going to continue, but there's some really good signs underneath what D.J. LeMahieu is doing. His contact rate is at 85%, which is a career high. His hard-hit contact index has been rising over the last five seasons. So started out at 66 in 2011. At this point, uh, this year it's 110. So uh, gradually increasing his hard-hit contact rate. Uh, if you look at some other signs, too, his ground ball rate is down just a little bit. Uh, but line drive and fly ball rates are up uh, it, concomitantly. So looks like DJ LeMayu could have a sort of a mini breakout at this point this year. We're not talking about a whole lot, but maybe maybe five to ten home runs, 20 stolen bases, perhaps. You know, the, the kind of guy who could, could help you out a bit in the middle infield. The one fly in the ointment appears to be uh, the a rel- relatively low fly ball percentage rate, uh, Nick, in the in the mid twenties and a very high ground ball rate. But he's got the speed to turn those ground balls into batting average, or or so we'd expect with an expected batting average this year so far of two seventy nine. Uh, even if he underperforms that by fifteen points, uh, that's still a useful batting average. And uh, we're projecting uh, only ten bags the rest of the way, but I think that's kind of a floor more than a ceiling. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, the other things to think about with DJ LeMahieu, Josh Rutledge is gone from Colorado, so 
not a, not a lot of immediate competition for his uh, for his playing time. Uh, and he does have the Colorado thing working for him, so he's got to have his home games in Coors Field, and that's certainly going to help the batting average. The rest of that projection, by the way, a little bit of power, 274 batting average, as I said. And we have him down for about uh, 13 14 bucks. so if you can pick him up on the cheap, might be worth looking at him. Uh, Stephen Nickrand in his column, Nick, also mentioned Arizona outfielder A.J. Pollock. Yeah, AJ Pollock is uh, you know AJ Pollock is one guy that we, we looked at as a as a possible breakout last year. He came very close and then he got injured, and so far this season his surface stats are not uh, are not huge. One home run, one stolen base, but a 9.20 OPS. So he's been hitting the ball very very well, even though it hasn't been going out of the park much yet. But and he's done it without hacking. His 10% walk rate, 87% contact rate. So. That breakout season that we were looking at a year ago that got kind of terminated by his broken hand, that certainly could happen this year. And we're looking at a possibility of, say, 15 homers, 30 stolen bases, uh, and a guy that maybe uh, you may be able to also pick up on the cheap at this point in the year. Always had a hard contact index, over 100, 100, of course, is league average. So just a little bit above it so far this year, but uh, a lot of good signs for A.J. Pollock. But now, Nick, do we have any concerns over playing time? We've got Yasmani Tomas uh, has returned. Ender Inciardi's playing all right. They've got Mark Trumbo uh, f- providing some useful power. And, of course, David Peralta's out there as well. In all, it, there's a lot of outfielders in Arizona, especially since they don't have the DH to rotate anybody through, and they're certainly not going to move anybody to first base uh, in place of Paul Goldschmidt. Yeah, there, you know, there are a lot of outfielders out there. You know, as inevitably, somebody's going to get hurt. And, uh, and, and that will, will, uh, open up the playing time. At this point, Paul is playing, playing regularly, playing every day. Um, as is Trumbo and, and the other outfielders, I think are kind of rotating through a kind of a, a kind of a, a series there. It'll, uh, Yosmani Tomas is kind of the wild card. It'll be interesting to see where they play him. Uh, he doesn't do much at third base. He, we, we, we know he's not a good third baseman. Uh, doesn't feel the position very well and probably really belongs in the outfield. Uh, but my guess is that uh, Peralta is the one who's likely to lose the most playing time. He's off to the slowest start, certainly, to begin the year. Uh, and at this point, Inciardi and uh, and Pollock are, are hot. So he'll have to keep hitting. If he stops hitting, the, then they're going to they're gonna, uh, sit him. But uh, as long as he keeps hitting, I think he'll be in there almost every day. For the time being, BaseballHQ.com is projecting A.J. Pollock for 500 at-bats the rest of the way, so full-time play, $20, double-digit homers, 20-plus stolen bases, a really good outfielder to have in fantasy baseball. Nick, as I said, uh, Stephen Nickrand is also covering starting pitchers this year, and he says in his extreme starts we should be looking favorably at Brewers' right-handed starter Jimmy Nelson. Yeah, Jimmy Nelson is one of those guys we kept looking at last year and saying, you know, this guy's really good. But then when he when he finally got a chance to pitch, he struggled a bit in the majors uh, initially, as we as you know as you frequently expect a a young starter to do. I mean, last year a 4.93 ERA over 69 innings, and uh, so so some some struggles going on and a 2.9 record. Uh, but but he certainly started the year well this year. At this point, we're looking at. Uh, at Jimmy Nelson, over three starts with a 1.35 ERA, 17 strikeouts, four walks, and 20 innings pitched. So certainly off to an excellent beginning. And there's a fact fluke column that that, that was uh, just posted by Brian Rudd uh, that talks about Nelson. And what Brian Rudd mentioned in that column is that uh, part of the problem with Nelson has been his ability to handle right left-handed hitters. And he's got a new pitch against left-handers. Small sample of, of it at this point, but... Uh, 
that that pitch, that breaking ball he's now using against left-handers, seems to be getting the job done. Early results are very positive, although a small a small sample. But if he can handle left-handers and has a good out pitch against them, uh, then uh, Jimmy Nelson could really break out this year. And this year so far, he's got an opposition OPS against in the 400s against left-handers and right-handers. No home runs surrendered. It's it's early in the year. Last year it was five home runs against left-handed hitters against only one for right-handers uh, in limited plate appearances. I, I like Jimmy Nelson a lot, but right now it's a modest projection at BaseballHQ.com. We're looking around 9 or 10 bucks, uh, 130 strikeouts, 158 innings, uh, ERA in the 350 area, whip around 125, which are not outstanding numbers, but useful, I guess. But he does have that really nice combination of strikeouts and ground balls. Yeah, he does. He has that nice combination. What what Brian Rudd says about that about what he's doing with left-handers at this point, and we'll have to see if he's able to continue it. He's got a curveball. He's been throwing forty percent of the time without left-handers and getting a nineteen percent swinging strike rate. As we said, it's early, and it's probably not something that uh, because it's a new pitch that they're anticipating. So as the batters begin to adjust to it, there there could be some more issues with that. But at this point, it's working very well for him. And finally, Nick Steven Nickrand again uh, was on Twitter, and he tweeted out a positive comment about Dodger reliever Yimmy Garcia. And uh, Garcia was also mentioned in a column about early season leverage index by our fine bullpens columnist Doug Dennis. Yeah, you know, you look at Yimmy Garcia, that's a name you may not have heard of yet at this point, but he pitched very well in spring training. At this point, he's been in eight games. He has two wins already, so they've been using him in, in, in tie ball games and good leverage situations. 14 strikeouts, three walks, and nine innings pitched a 1.04 ERA. I mean, this guy is pitching lights out at the moment, a 14.5 dom this early in the season, and only only three walks per nine innings. So, uh, Yimmy Garcia is certainly a guy to watch. He's not going to find himself in in uh, in situations where he's going to close early in the year, maybe not at all during the year, but in a keeper league, I think a good guy to, to sneak onto your roster at this point. And uh, two wins and eight appearances suggest that, that, that they're going to use him in, uh, in those difficult situations, and the Dodgers certainly are capable of scoring some runs. Certainly one of the things we know about managers is that once they find something that works, they tend to want to stick with it. And maybe this is a situation where, of course, as you say, you're not going to get a lot of saves, which will probably depress the value of uh, Yimmy Garcia in your fab bidding. But uh, there's a potential here to pick up uh, enough wins to offset a, a bad starter. You know, you could replace a, an eight-win starter with a five ERA with an eight-win reliever with a two ERA. You're actually money ahead. Our pr- projected value for Yimmy Garcia Garcia at Baseball HQ is positive, four or five dollars with vulture wins and excellent decimals. All right, Nick, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols writes pitcher matchup reports for BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League, and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. Good to be here, as usual. It's always big news, Jock, when there's a change of closers. We've had a couple already this year in both leagues, and this week in Detroit, Joe Nathan is going to have Tommy John surgery. His season is over, possibly his career. Um, we'll leave Joe Nathan aside for now. What are the ramifications in the Detroit bullpen? Well, obviously, to anyone who's been watching, uh, Joaquin Soria is now pretty much entrenched as uh, Detroit's closer, and he's been outstanding in the role so far. He's uh, he's given up two hits and an earned run in uh, in six and two thirds innings. Um, he has what uh, five saves to date, um, and and uh, he's he's always had uh, terrific uh, triple digits uh, base performance values. 
but there's trouble looming. Um, in, despite his elite skills, uh, he's had an injury track record these last three years. He's coming off of uh, Tommy John surgery, his second one uh, three years ago. His velocity has has uh, decreased, declined a little bit, and he's never been a big velocity guy. He's always big, big on control. But um, it would seem with that injury history, he doesn't have much uh, much room for error these days. Yeah, the uh, the two Tommy Johns are a real concern for me because uh, we have so much evidence that a second Tommy John surgery is uh, is extremely problematic. A first one is bad enough, but two is uh, is a real issue. So uh, if we assume that he's not going to manage a, a full season off the DL, which would be relatively rare for him, and uh, and we'll further assume that somebody in your league probably already has Soria already rostered. What's the play here for down the road? Well, the guy in line right now is Jabba Chamberlain, and we we're all familiar with Jabba. He 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 came into the league throwing high nineties. He's not doing that anymore. He's more the the low nineties, uh, ninety two, ninety three for the most part, and he's fairly erratic. Um, last year, um, uh, uh, he didn't strike out much more than seven batters uh, per nine innings. This year, he's down to six. Um, he's pitched well so far. He he hasn't given up a run in his first. Uh, uh, four innings um so he he's the next in line the guy i'm still still high on is bruce rondone despite his tommy john surgery which which happened back in 2014 he was throwing 100 miles an hour and generating gobs of ground balls before that happened and he was doing it again this spring as he was rehabbing from tommy john um they shut him down he's got apparently an unrelated bicep uh, injury but um, when he pitches, he seems to throw hard. So if you're if you really want to speculate on Detroit saves, I would I would give a, a shout out to Bruce Rondone here. In a lot of leagues, of course, you're going to have to wait till he comes off the DL, and uh, that we don't know exactly when that's going to be. So uh, Jabba Chamberlain, uh, it, it doesn't look like a real strong situation for Detroit overall, and there may be somebody come out of the woodwork uh, if Chamberlain continues to walk guys and and maintain that relatively low strikeout rate. Right now, we're projecting Soria to have. A full season at 39 saves, an ERA around 320, a WHIP around 110, a low $20 value. So certainly, sorry, is a play if you if he's not already rostered in your league, you might want to get an aggressive fab bid on Joaquin Soria. In your playing time tomorrow space, Jock, covering the American League West as you do, you talked about Seattle's surprising issues in their rotation early in the season. King Felix is King Felix, no problem there. But Taiwan Walker and Hisashi Iwakuma are really struggling. Uh, Walker had a really good spring. So what has happened to him, and what do you think is the forecast in Seattle, other than rain? Yeah, really. I've watched parts of uh, Walker's uh, two starts, and he looks lost out there. He looked nothing like he looked in the in the spring. He doesn't look confident at all. Um, he's lost. Essentially, what's happened is he's lost his control. I mean, to to date, his uh, his uh, walks per nine innings at seven point one. Of course, wow. it's a small sample. It's only thirteen innings. But when you're walking people, and then you got to lay one in, you get hammered, and that's what's been happening to Taiwan. He was a little better his last game. He only gave up one run to a to a weak hitting Houston team, but he still walked four hitters in less than six innings. And um, he's either going to need to pull it together or he's going to need a timeout uh, down in uh, down in the minors. Uh, he obviously has options left. I like Walker longer term. He's still throwing hard. He's throwing 94, 95. I think this is just a blip, but uh, it can't make his owners too happy right now. 
No, I wouldn't say so. And, and uh, you know, another problem that, that arises when you have a lot of walks is that you end up with a lot of guys on base, which means you're pitching from the stretch. And with men on, his uh, OPS against this year is 12.07, which is really, really high compared to when he's pitching from the full windup with nobody aboard under 600. So he's his OPS against is double whenever he has runners on base. And that's a problem if you're walking that many guys. Yeah, it seems to snowball from, for Walker. Uh, he pitches well until the runners get on base, and then boom. Um, uh, it's 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 an interesting situation. Now, Hisashi Iwakuma, a couple of years ago, was just an outstanding pitcher, came out of nowhere to put up a near $30 season, but he's struggling as well this year. What's going on with him? Yeah, his problem is a little different than, than uh, Taiwan's. He's older, obviously. He's 33. Iwakuma, from my standpoint, and I watch a lot of him, I, I owned him a couple of years ago, and he's always been a fascinating pitcher to me in that he's never been a, a big velocity guy, but he's relied uh, almost completely on command. But his command is off this year. I mean, he's he's putting too many too many balls uh, over the middle of the plate. His control is still very good, and his velocity is down a tick. And when you've never been a, a big velocity guy, um, and and you go from um, say 90 90 miles an hour or even 89 down to 88, and you're starting to lose your command, you're going to get hit hard, and that's what's happening to him. Yeah, it was 2013. He was actually third in the Cy Young voting, and I don't imagine anybody would assume he's going to be anywhere near that this year. Uh, are there any solutions for the Mariners? and or fantasy owners who are struggling along with Walker and, and Iwakuma? Well, not promising at this point in time. You've, uh, Erasmo Ramirez is uh, was out of options, and now he's in Tampa Bay. Obviously, they traded him for uh, for Mike Montgomery. There's Rowenis Elias, who's down in AAA, and he actually had a pretty decent year for someone who was as unsung as he was uh, heading into 2014. But he's struggling at AAA right now. Danny Hulson has yet to throw a pitch. He's still rehabbing from his rotator cuff surgery. You've got guys like uh, Montgomery and Mike Kickham who could contribute later on, but no one is really standing out right now. I, I have a feeling that this Seattle rotation is going to get a lot of rope through early May. That same rope could hang us because you know they, they're forced to throw these guys out there day in and day out. Doesn't mean that we want them in our lineups putting up those 5.5 ERAs. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I I would expect Walker to turn it around. I I still like him longer term. Obviously, we can't tell what he's going to do from game to game, um, but uh, I, I I still think uh, Walker is gonna is is going to be okay in the long run. Funny thing, of the two, I'd rather have Iwakuma, and I look at this as maybe a buy-low opportunity from an impatient owner. I know he's uh, he's older, and that, that is a cause for concern, but in, a, in another way, you could say that he has the experience that might allow him to work his way through whatever his problems are. The downside to that, of course, is if he's got some kind of injury that we don't know about, then maybe Iwakuma could be a bad bet. But if you can get him for 25 cents on the dollar in a trade, I'd think about it at least. Uh, the White Sox, meanwhile, have promoted Carlos Rodon, their uh, number three overall pick in the last draft, and a pretty common selection is the best pitcher in that draft. Bob Berger covered Rodon for BaseballHQ.com in playing time tomorrow. Should we be lining up to get fab bids in on Carlos Rodon? Rodon, he's a, he's a college product from NC State, so he's very polished. Uh, uh, like you said, high draft pick. Only 35 minor league innings, but really good results. 51 strikeouts, no home runs. That tells you something, doesn't it? Uh, Mid-90s fastball, killer slider, and developing other pitches as well. He did walk 17 guys in the minors through a relatively short number of innings. That's got to be a sign of concern. 
Yeah, he did. And he walked three major league hitters in his first two and third innings. Uh, uh, that is a concern. He needs some polishing. The White Sox are going to try the slow development by bullpen approach to Rodon's career, which kind of makes sense for several reasons. They certainly did it successfully with Chris Sale. Yeah, and I, I'm pretty sure that's one of the reasons. Um, um, so Radon's innings are going to be likely limited, even if he gets some long relief and spot, spot starts during the season, which I think he will. Um, he, how he's used is obviously going to depend on how he does and what Chicago's needs are. But when you're looking at uh, at John Danks at the back of that uh, uh, rotation and and how he's been so far, you you got to think that Radon's going to get some starts. Carlos Radon, uh, we're projecting at Baseball HQ uh, for negative value in 2015. We do expect seven wins, but 4.20 ERA, a, a, a WHIP closer to one, f- almost 150, and 95 strikeouts, uh, not that promising for Carlos Radon in the short term. Of course, if you're in a keeper league or dynasty league of some description. Obviously, this guy's a great talent, and you'd probably want to have him somewhere. Over in Minnesota, Jock, Kenneth Vargas uh, started off last year with a bang when he was first called up, and uh, he's really stumbled out of the gate so far this year. He's under 200 for a batting average, hitting the ball on the ground more than half the time. He's a big lumbering lummox. He makes uh, David Ortiz look like Usain Bolt for foot speed. Uh, this is not a guy you want hitting ground balls, but... Uh, Minnesota clearly hoped he was going to be productive. He has not been. Mike Shears covered the story in Playing Time Today at BaseballHQ.com. What are we seeing here? I'm one of those guys who likes uh, Vargas, uh, and I look at it from a long-term perspective. I'm a keeper league guy. But right now, he's really showing his inexperience. He was rushed. He, he's had just 350 bats above high A and none in AAA. Vargas's patient isn't nearly as bad as I've heard it described by some. His recent minor league history doesn't show that, and neither do his early um, 2015 numbers. He's walking at a 10% clip. But he is getting fooled by changeup. He's hitting off his front foot, and he's beating the ball into the ground. He needs to adjust to major league pitching quickly, or he's going to need a, a timeout in the minors. The one thing you got to remember, or all Vargas owners should remember, is that it's still really cold in the Midwest, uh, Great Lakes, part of the U.S. in April. If... Vargas gets benched, who gets his playing time? Recently, it's been uh, Eduardo Escobar, who might be mildly interesting to deep lead owners, given his 276 uh, batting average and $8 earnings last year. He doesn't have a lot of secondary skills. Um, but Vargas primarily is a DH, so really anyone, including a potential call-up, could take a chunk of his uh, bats if he doesn't pull out of this. For now, I think they give Vargas more rope, but uh, like I, I said, he needs to turn thing ar- things around over the next three weeks. We're projecting Vargas to turn it around indeed. 450 at bats, worth eight or nine bucks. 14 homers, 62 RBIs, and a 250 ish batting average. And finally, Jock in Boston. I don't know about this Brock Holt. He just seems to figure out a way to get playing time, and he's getting more of it this year. He hit 281 last year and 450 at bats. Both Chris Olson in playing time tomorrow and Matt Dodge in playing time today have covered Holt this year. Is he pushing his way into the Boston lineup? And if he is, where? Well, both those guys noted that uh, Brock's uh, batting average on balls in play, or as we call it, hit rate, is really soaring right now. It was 48% entering entering Friday, and Pablo Sandoval has had a nagging foot injury. Holtz filled in uh, there and uh, when, when other Red Sox players need rest. And in a way, this is a lot like 2014 when an extended uh, and inflated hit rate early on, it was, it was 39% in the first half, helped win Brock early playing time. But then the Red Sox five-year-long struggles also kept Holt in the lineup when he, even when he cooled down. But hold on here, Jock. The Sox are paying Sandoval a mountain of money, and they're certainly not going to sit him so that they can play Brock Holt. 
in general, this team really appears to be loaded offensively across the roster. Is this not a problem for Holt's playing time? Yeah, it is. And that's the rub for anyone who owns Holt or wants to own Holt. He got 449 at bats uh, last year. Um, and uh, like you said, uh, it, it's it's not likely he's going to see that many at bats again this year, given how loaded the Red Sox are offensively, unless there's a huge number of injuries. Um, uh, positional versatility really helps him, but I don't think he's ever going to be a great uh, bet to put up regular 400 at bat seasons unless the Red Sox really get hit. His playing time is always going to depend on his hit rate and the quality of team he's on. Well, it is a good team and injuries do happen, but uh, we're projecting Brock Holt to be maybe a 2 or $3 player, less than 200 at-bats. Yeah, you know, a couple of home runs, a couple of bags, around 265 or so. Uh, you could do worse in a deep league. I can't see him in a mixed. Uh, thanks, Jock, very much. Appreciate you taking the time. We'll catch up with you again next week. Okay, PD. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, our regular weekly Talk with Todd, it's Todd Zola, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Two balls and two strikes on him. Here's the pitch on the way, a swing and a foul. Left field, way back, Blue Jays win it! And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. BaseballHQ.com is working 24-7 to give you everything you need to succeed in 2015. Like these features, Ron Chandler's Fanalytics column looks at fantasy baseball in 2020. That's not a measure of your vision, that's a year. In the Daily Call-Ups report, BaseballHQ.com's minor league analysts look at Cubs prize shortstop prospect Addison Russell, right-handed long reliever Chris Bassett of Oakland, and Angels right-handed starter Nick Tropiano. And in playing time tomorrow, analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at the National League West, including whether Padres second baseman Jed Jorko is playing himself right out of a spot. Plus, we have all the other great stuff refreshed every day to give you fantasy baseball intelligence for winners at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular weekly talk with Todd, and it's a pleasure to once again be joined by Todd Zola, contributor to BaseballHQ.com, ChandlerPark.com, ESPN, Fantasy Alarm, Masters Ball, and others. Todd Zola, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Really great to be here, Patrick. Todd, you made some news yourself with an aggressive $18 fab bid in labor mixed to acquire Roberto Perez, the catcher in Cleveland, and he'll take the spot of John Jaso on your roster. And before we talk about the ins and outs of fab bidding and how aggressive to be, uh, I noticed that it took you a couple of weeks. Uh, John Jaso had actually been off your roster for a couple of weeks. Why did it take so long to get that bid in? Well, uh, my my life, my my fantasy life is an open book, so I'll, I'll cop to it. Uh I was la- not lazy. I, I I wasn't used to the fab system. Not so much not used to it, but um, the RTS Sports who we use, really good fab system. They require a final submit. Once you do your fab, uh, you line it up and you hit submit. I do fab for the NFBC at the same time I do RTS, and they're very similar, except the NFBC doesn't require that final button. So for two weeks in a row, I went through the process of trying to replace JSO in like a goof. Uh, I think I called myself Lord Scatterbrain 
in the uh, in the actual write up because I write up what I do and I can't write up my moves if I didn't put them in. So Lord Scatterbrain Brain twice in a row failed to hit the submit button uh, to get his backup for uh, John Jaso. So it took me uh, took me into the third week of the season before I finally replaced him and uh, doing fairly well in the league. I hope it doesn't come back to haunt me. Um, but you know, yeah. someone you know, I'm embarrassed by it, literally, and especially because not only that, I'm supposed to write about it. So two weeks in a row, I have to admit to my readers that you know I did something that I you know tell them not to do. So I don't want to say it even happens to the best of them because I don't want to say that I'm the best of them. But you know, it uh, you know these kind of things matter and happen. And they are probably more likely to happen nowadays than in years past because we have this proliferation of operating systems and and uh, league software commissioner systems and so forth, where if you're in multiple leagues, there's a good chance you might be running uh, your fab or, or other kind of roster moves over three, four, five different uh, roster uh, software packages. Absolutely. Not only that, even the same site if you do it at home on your computer and then you do it on the road via mobile sometimes it's just a little bit different as well so it's yeah it's 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 it, the, you know the, the different number of rectangles and operating systems out there and in computers it, it you're right it's vast and you get into a groove and you get into a, a you know a habit and you know not all habits are good so i've now learned hopefully that uh when i need to replace a player and i do this on nfbc i just don't necessarily do it in this other league is as soon as a guy gets hurt even if it's wednesday put in your bid that way you know it's there so if something bizarre happens you know maybe there'll be a better player that showed up over the course of the week but you've got something in there uh so now i'm I'm putting labor onto that list and probably you know it's an industry league by rights i should have had this on my list to do it anyway but as soon as a guy i know gets hurt i'm going to put a you know a first run bid in if i have to change it i have to change it but, um, you know, it's just, uh, I owe it to my team and I owe it to, you know, the privilege of being in the league to, uh, to be doing that. Who did you bid on that you didn't get because of the submit button issue? I don't recall. Uh, it was probably, I, uh, James McCann is a guy that I probably would have bid on because I don't know that anybody would have come up in the past couple of weeks, which is why I'm not completely going goofy over it. I kind of think James McCann is a guy that will have the job. By the end of the uh, season, or you know, during the season, he'll take it from Alex Sevilla. Something will happen, so he's kind of a guy that I might have used as a stopgap. Um, I don't recall, you know, Hank Conger is another one. So there really hadn't been anybody off the top of my head that had come up and possibly, you know, that I was kicking my really, really kicking myself that I didn't get. Right. Uh, the you know, I, the two guys that came up this week were uh, Perez and. Jacob Riomuto, uh, I got you know I got Perez, and I'm I'm not so much buying bu- buyer's remorse, but I'm going to follow that situation because it wouldn't surprise me if Riomuto ends up to be the better player uh, over the long haul. Well, not long haul, but this season. You mentioned buyer's remorse. Uh, you made the eighteen dollar bid you made in labor to get Perez uh, was a very aggressive bid, and labor doesn't use the Vickery method that Tout Wars uses, so you don't get the bid rollback. And the only other bids were a dollar, and it turns out you spent the full eighteen bucks, which turns out to have been seventeen dollars more than you had to bid. How do you react when you look back at how the bidding went and realized you spent a lot more than you need to need to have spent? Um, well, what I did was the actual dynamics of looking at the bid. 
I don't recall the exact player that our friend Jeff Erickson got the previous week, but he needed to replace a catcher, and he bid $11 on his replacement. And the backup bid was only one, but you know I saw the 11 and figured if somebody else is doing what I'm doing and seeing what it took you know, to get a catcher the previous week, so that's where the 18 came in. It was a little bit above the 11, but not horribly above the 11. And in a mixed league, now you mentioned it's no victory. The other sort of caveat that you need to keep in mind is there's no $0 bids in this league. So, you know, people, if you know, oh, well, at least in a mixed league, at least I can bid zero and get somebody. Can't do that. But I still wanted to get a replacement at a position where no one is really getting a whole heck of a lot of uh, catchers this year in general is just down. So I didn't want to lose too much at the position or I wanted to make sure I got something. Uh, so I, I wasn't, I didn't mind being aggressive. It's a mixed league. I'm going to have a, I'm going to put a dollar bid in on somebody at some point that's going to give me a whole lot more than that dollar to make up for it. Uh, so it, I'm, I'm more likely to be aggressive like this in a mixed league where later on in the year I'll make up for the fact that I air quoted overpaid, uh, than, than, than if I had, you know, put a two or three dollar bid in. They were, the other thing being, not only was the $11 bid by Jeff last week, I counted three, perhaps up to five teams that I felt should be in on the bidding for right. these catchers, whether they had just lost a catcher themselves or were trying to replace uh, a lesser, a lesser catcher. I felt there could be up to five teams in on the bidding. So I wanted to make sure I, I covered that as well. I think the important lesson here is once your bid is in and once you've discovered what happened for good or ill, you, you can't beat yourself up for what you didn't do because you make your best available guess at what the appropriate action is to take. Maybe there's a bit of learning to, to be had, but I've always found in, in since all my leagues went to fab bidding, it's kind of a mugs game to try to use what happened this week to predict what's going to happen in any subsequent week because there's so many um, variables. There's so many balls in the air, which teams are bidding and, and how aggressive do they need to be? Have they historically been? Right. I think it's the, the old trusty uh, process, not the outcome like we talk about with, with player analysis. My process was sound. I looked at what it took to get catchers. I looked at how many players or how many fellow owners needed a catcher, and I put a bid in based on that. So to me, that's a sound process. The outcome was I could have put a $2 bid in and got the guy. Don't right. know. you know. So if you, if you use the right process, more often than not, you'll end up doing the right thing. You did get a thumbs up from Mike Gianella. He's a really good fantasy player in his own right. He was writing a fab review article, and how much does getting that kind of validation from an external source matter to you? You know, honestly, validation means nothing to me. But what I do do, and I think we've talked about this, I will use people like Mike and other people in the industry that I trust to see what they do previous to a bid, to see who they might like, uh, to see, you know, for instance, um, you know, if there's somebody like Gene McCaffrey, when, when Gene McCaffrey makes a move in a league, I, I, I think there's a reason for it. And if I don't agree with it, I try to figure out why he may have made that move. Uh, there's certain player, certain, you know, guys that, that are, are familiar with the team. And when, when say my, my master's ball partner, Brian Walton makes a move on the Cardinals, they're yeah, Homer, Homer. Or when, uh, you know, Jason Collette makes a move on Tampa, you know, Homer. I don't think it's a homer move. These guys can root for those players, you know, regardless if they're on their team. These guys are really good fantasy players. So if they're 
willing to, you know, put a, a Cardinal for Brian and a Tampa Ray guy for Jason on their team, it's not because they're fans. It's because there may be some familiarity with the player, but there's also some trust. So if they trust that player and they know him a little more intimately than I might, then I'm going to trust that player too. Just as I know Gene's analysis methods, I trust him. So if he's on a guy that I'm not necessarily on, you know what? I'm going to take a look at it and I'll do the, you know, I'll say the same thing with Ray Murphy. When Ray makes a move, I, you know, I take a look at it because we have similar philosophies and what, what did I miss? And sometimes it's just within the game itself and it's out of necessity. And, but you know, that's just part of the game. But, you know, so it's not so much reassurance, but I'd be silly if I did, you know, these guys are, you know, these guys are assets to my game playing. You know, why not use their knowledge to make my game playing a little bit better if possible? And that's true in any league. You you should know all the good players, the good owners who are in your league, the ones who tend to be successful. And uh, another aspect of fab bidding that most, uh, in, in fact, all to my uh, knowledge, uh, commissioner software allows you to do is to review all the bidding that took place in the previous week and in previous weeks, plural, sometimes. And it can be really a worthwhile exercise to look and see who else the uh, a good owner uh, bid on in addition to whoever he got. Do you know what I mean? So the, Because a lot of times some of those players are going to still be in the free agent pool. And if a good owner in your league put a put in a bid that didn't end up being successful because he outbid himself for a better player or a different player. This can be an awfully useful source of information about who the good guys in your league think are valuable or worthwhile player assets. There's a couple services out there that don't do this. We don't we don't have to we don't have to hang them out to dry, but some do. And you know, we've talked about the fab reports I put together, and that's one reason I take the extra time to con- include all bids. So I'll include the contingencies to the winning bid, and it'll also include the unawarded. Have a separate section for unawarded bids for just that very reason. Uh, you know, who did you know who did Gene McCaffrey? If he he got this guy, okay, that's great. Who else did he want? Because that tells me as much information as it did who we actually got. So you know, we include that there um, with you know with the bids. And, and you're right. I, I prefer. I've actually switched leagues over to sites that you can go back and look at the fab numbers just because, you know, as the commissioner, you've got the access to it. And sometimes once you hit the submit, you know, put the bids in button, it disappears other than the winning bids in the cyberspace. And you were the only one that got to see the losing bids. And I kind of think that's unfair. So as a commissioner, to keep things fair, I prefer the sites that, you know, anybody can go back and get the information. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola. And Todd, uh, at FantasyAlarm.com, you continued your Category Impact series with a look at stolen bases. But I like the new twist you put on it. You're looking at the catchers and the pitchers, not the base runners. Were you thinking mostly about applying this to daily games? Uh, I don't know about mostly. Um, I'd be lying if I said, you know, no. But um, uh, there's a, you, a good faction of the Fantasy Alarm audience plays in traditional roto with daily moves um you know the fantasy alarm built its business on getting alerts out there about you know players and the in and out of the lineup so it just it's just natural that the the extension of their audience is they play traditional with daily moves so yeah it was for both dfs and for people that are you know especially specifically on your you know your mondays and your thursdays where you might have the open roster spots to be able to float guys in but in general any day really um and I think we 
the information's out there, the data's out there, and I'm not the first one. I mean, this has been, you know, people use this. But uh, it was just I thought it would be an interesting twist, uh, you know, because I haven't wrote, written about it yet, to uh, to look at the catchers and the pitchers and to see if there's a way to figure out which player to use. You know, a, a guy that steals bases, but he has a better chance or a better opportunity to steal that particular weekend or that particular game. You did characterize the poorest catchers. I like this uh, use of non-scientific nomenclature, noodle arms. <laughs> <laughs> how did you arrive at that characterization? I don't care about the name, but how, who, who uh, among the catchers became noodle arms and why? To be honest, I'm usually a little more scientific about where I do the cutoffs and that sort of thing. But uh, the data, I don't want to say sketchy, the limited sample size, it was more of a empirical sort of going through it. And I would say anybody that was, say, a 20% success rate or less over uh, the past several years, uh, past couple of years, got my noodle arm designation. Uh, the, the reason that it really couldn't, you know, hard and fast is the, the data isn't all that consistent. I mean, a guy may have been 33% success throwing some guys out one year and, and then maybe, you know, 20 and 22% a couple other years. So maybe he got a noodle arm designation, even though he had one 33% year in there. So I didn't want to do it strict averages. So there was some subjectivity to the uh, designation because there's a couple of interesting names that, um, I don't know. Maybe I should have put him in the group where there's not an informa information. But they play regularly enough that I thought it was important to include him. Like Yasmani Grandal, at least thus far, has not been all that successful throwing runners out. And I know he's hurt now, but neither was Travis Darno. So I wanted to, and Mike Zanino. Although Zanino at this point's had enough of an opportunity to show what he can do. Um, so those are three names that sort of, you know, regular catchers that, you know, we don't know that are going to be in the lineup that aren't very good at throwing runners out. Um, Jared Saltamakia, but I think just having, because he's been around so long, I think we pretty much know that one if you just watch ball games. Derek Norris is another one that, um, sort of, uh, was curious about because, you know, he's hitting high up in the San Diego lineup, so he's going to be playing. So there's a pretty good chance he's going to be in the lineup that day. So if you, you know, he's catching against you, you can run, run against him. So a couple other names that I was sort of, I don't want to use the word bummed out about, but um, Michael McHenry and Hank Conger are a couple catchers that I think can hit, but now we know, might know why they're not in the lineup because they can't throw. So I mentioned James McCann before as catchers that I'm hoping emerge by the end of the year. I had McHenry and Conger as a couple guys that, you know, let's keep an eye on them. They could emerge into bigger roles. Well, not if they can't throw anybody out, they won't. You also had categories for pitchers ranging from elite run stoppers down to uh, guys who are basically open season. And again, some biggish names at the bottom of that particular barrel. Yeah, well, uh, A.J. Burnett and, and Jake Arrieta, um, Timmy Linscombe. I think a lot of, I mean, you know, as, as a Red Sox fan, I knew several years ago, they literally did not care about a guy on first base. They just said, get the next guy out. So, you know, Jason Veritek for years was, you know, denigrated for his throwing arm, and it was just more that the pitchers never gave him a chance. Uh, so I don't know if that's necessarily the same way with, with a Burnett and Annabelle Sanchez is on the list and Jake Arrieta, uh, John Lackey. But um, maybe that's, you know, maybe that's the way they think, and that's, you know, if, okay, I get the guy on, I'm just going to strike the next guy out and not worry if he steals. 
but yeah, there's a, a couple names on that list are are, are to, very much to be aware of. Burnett might just be, you know, he's just so inherently wild that yeah. you know <laughs> the kids doesn't give the catcher a very good chance to get comfortable back there to to throw the guy out. Arietta surprised me a bit because he's a guy that you know a thinking man's pitcher, so I, I would have thought that he might be a little bit better, but maybe that's more of a an artifact of of he's only recently found his groove and you know curious to follow him over the years. Timmy Linscombe's got that long windup, uh, which which could affect the uh, you know the ability for his catchers to help him out because Buster Posey's one of the best throwing runners out. So that kind of caught me a little off guard. I figured you know Posey could help Linscombe out a bit, but apparently not. Even in the next highest group uh, of of those pitchers, you say that it's okay to start a stolen base threat. So who are some of those pitchers who are not good but might uh, might still be vulnerable? I guess we should first um, sort of frame this by saying I'm not you know we're not saying to start you know expect steals out of you know Miguel Cabrera because these guys it's like those fringe right. guys that you know do I start Alcides Escobar or do I start um, he's hurt, but I'm trying to think. You know, Johnny Peralta, he's not hurt. You know, do I need power or do I need speed? So a guy like you know Alcides Escobar, if he's against you know somebody mentioned you know uh, Andrew Kashner's in this list, Cole Hamels is in this list, uh, Ennis and Volquez is on this list, Chris Archer, if he's against one of these guys, well first I need to look up the the catcher, um, but if the catcher's not superb, then the the pitcher himself for whatever reason isn't good at preventing running, then I would, you know, this is a time to start Alcides Escobar over Johnny Peralta because there's a better chance to get that stolen base than to maybe have Peralta knock one out of the yard that day. It seems like intuitive and probably provable that it isn't the pitcher or the catcher, but the combination of the two. And so uh, if we could figure out some way to combine the information so that you had like an index or something that would have the batteries uh, listed rather than the pitchers and catchers individually might be a real breakthrough but it'd be a lot of work well that that was uh, that was asked in the comments and in a couple private correspondence because you know nowadays people they just want to you know i it, in order to do this the way i suggested you need to sort of go to two different lists so exactly can we make it one list so i think the way you know the work on my end is the work on my end you know that that's sort of a, a given that's you know what i get paid for so to speak but we need to present it in a way that is easily accessible. So what I was thinking is, instead of presenting every single battery, what if we just presented the ones that are really, really, really easy to run on and the ones that are, you know, really, really hard to run on, and that would limit, you know, eliminate a lot of the bandwidth, and everybody else was just assumed to be, you know, I don't want to say flip a coin, but use your judgment. Um, so I might, you know, the next time that I hit steals, which is you know, maybe even next week, I might just do that because it, it, there seems to be, uh, a call for it in the comments, so I'll probably try to find the best combinations, uh, you know, either way, and therefore um, limit the amount of work the, that the user has to do. Does he fall into one of these two groups? If not, well, then you know, it's a it's a coin flip whether to start him or not. Are there any stolen base guys currently that you'd think I'll start him? I don't care if he's up against Buster Posey or anybody else. He's just that good a base stealer. Billy Hamilton comes to mind. There, there are others. Are there any guys like that that you would just start under any circumstances? Well, I, I suppose. I mean, I, I, again, we're talking about sort of the you know the the Angel Pagans and and guys that might not be in your lineup every single day. So I'm not. I don't know. I, mean, I, I guess. 
there, if, if I felt that way, you know, Ben Revere, they would already be in my lineup, although Revere isn't a particularly good example right now because he's losing some playing time. So maybe that, maybe that makes him, uh, a good example because what if he's not playing all the time? Therefore, he's on my bench. So sure, if, uh, if, if Ben Revere is in a game against one of the better combinations, I will, I, he's one guy, I think, that I would just put in there. And, and use regardless. You know, these other guys, you know, your Altuve's and some of these other guys are, you know, they're playing every day. You don't have to worry about it. But, um, actually, I, you know, I need to make some line of decisions this afternoon with Ben Revere because the NFBC allows for Friday moves. So, you know, a couple of my lineups were, you know, let's go heavy on hitting, heavy on power at the beginning and let's get Ben Revere later for speed. And, you know, uh oh, he's not playing right. all the time anymore. I got to find some speed. Let me rephrase the question then. Uh, is there anybody, suppose you had Billy Hamilton on your roster or a, a more or less guaranteed speed guy? Is there any catcher, uh, for daily moves I'm talking about, is there any catcher or pitcher catcher combination? that you would just say, I'm not starting Hamilton because I just don't think he can steal against this particular pair. Okay, let's 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 switch it to DFS. Would I use Billy Hamilton, you know, if, if Buster Posey's the opposing catcher? No. Um I would not I would not use uh a stolen even I would say every stolen base guy. If every stolen and anybody who's primary contribution to steals is going up against one of the better throwers, I will not use him in DFS that day. Uh just because that's that's the only way they can usually get their points is with the right. stolen base. I'd rather take a chance on another guy that can can walk and, and score in a run or or you know get a hit and come around to score in a run. If the primary contribution of a player is getting points via steals, I don't care who it is, I'm not going to start him in the DFS on the daily game. Uh, against a really good catcher or a really good pitcher. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola. And Todd, staying with Daily Fantasy Baseball, you made a, a case in an article for Occam's Razor in building your daily rosters. I don't think that has anything to do with personal grooming, so what are you talking about? Well, what I'm talking about, you know, Occam Razor is, you know, sometimes, well, you know, paraphrasing, sometimes the most obvious answer is the right answer sort of thing. And you know, as as we've talked about, and people here when they play DFS, it can get some second level analysis can get pretty intricate as far as determining where you can get your edge, how you can build your optimal lineup. And I think that sometimes, you know, we we try to be too smart about it and look for these edges, overlooking the most obvious edge. And sometimes the most obvious edge is just a player who's better than the salary that the particular DFS site gives him. Uh, you know, let's, let's, you know, be in a, take a certain situation where let's say the site salary and the player's talent are a perfect match. And, you know, it, it's a match to what their, you know, season long expectation is. Sure. Now you have to use these different ways to find an edge for that particular matchup to, to get your return on your investment if the salary is set. You know, to his overall expectation. Is he at home? Does he have the head in this? Uh, they're not set that way. Uh, there are players that, for whatever reason, whose talent level exceeds that of their salary. And, it, you know, the, the head in this doesn't matter. The home away doesn't matter. Uh, the opposing pitcher doesn't matter as much. The mere fact that they're better than their salary is enough to give you a return on the investment. And I think those are the sort of players that 
if you're just getting into the game or you're just starting, uh, you want you, you can focus on those. You don't have to look up the the op the uh, the 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 woba splits lefty righty and all that sort of thing. You just have to know that you know uh, the the center fielder the outfielder for the Pittsburgh Pirates got hurt this week and there, there might be a replacement player who's probably going to be cheap. If uh, you know Lambo, if he comes in and plays any time this week, he could be a good return on the investment if Starling Marte. Uh, is still out of the lineup for any given, you know, for a game this weekend. There's a, you know, there's a few a player, you know, we can name a couple of those if you want that might fit into that category. Before we do, I, I think you're making an interesting point here. How often do, do, do the uh, sites change the salaries to update the playing time expectations, changes in baseline expectations about talent and so forth? I'm looking into that right now because to me, it seems they're doing it more frequently than they were last year. And some of the, some of the changes are, sh- are, sh- are sharper than they were last year. Um, and they, you know, they basically do it on a daily basis. It's just who are they adjusting? And, and I just, I sort of in my ideal example said that, you know, the, the, the price is based upon their neutral expectation. I think a couple sites are actually adjusting them based upon some of these splits built in. You know, specifically, I've noticed this past week, uh, some players from San Diego and Colorado in Coors Field, their prices have jumped significantly over and above, you know, they're neutral because of the fact that it's Coors Field and neither team has been putting the best pitchers out there. It's been a pretty, you know, high scoring week in, uh, in, in Colorado. Um, so I don't, I'm tracking that and I don't know. I know last year, uh, I had a good feel for it last year, but it doesn't necessarily mean that after a year of, 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 of looking into it, the, the sites themselves aren't going to change the way they do things. And, of course, I imagine they play it pretty close to the vest. I, I notice I don't play daily fantasy baseball a lot, but I do notice that sometimes there are some head-scratching values when you when you look at the lists of especially guys who seem to be overpriced, not so much underpriced, because the, the uh, position players are in a relatively narrow range to begin with. But I've, I see a lot of guys, I think, why is that guy 4,500? You know, he, he, he's not having a good year and he's not really that good. And, and uh, it, of course, it makes it easy to decide not to roster that particular guy, but it's curious. Some of that has to do with the scoring on the site and that we're so in tune with a rotisserie value that depending upon what site you're looking at, his his uh, his worth might be different. Now, um, some sites penalize for outs. Some sites penalize sites penalize for strikeouts. So it could have as much to do with the in, in, you know the same way that when we give out you know when we give out advice in the in, in the forums or in the radio whatever we need to know what's the scoring system is it rotisserie is it head to head is it points etc. So I, I mean I I found myself doing that too is when I'll do my my numbers to see who's going to be in my lineup. Uh, I'm surprised when I re-rank players based upon each site scoring that it's, you know, different than my intuitive feel for each player based on my rotisserie scoring. And that makes a lot of sense because one thing we tell everybody always when especially new people getting into the game is understand the rules you're playing and adjust the player values accordingly because some leagues have somewhat different scoring methods. And of course, all of these daily sites have they're they're basically similar, but it's the devil is in the details. Absolutely, because you know I can some sites are more uh, they're more help a small ball guy more. Some sites help a power guy more, and then there's a site that 
we talk about lineup stacking where they give extra points, relatively speaking, to RBIs and runs. So that helps guys in a stack that much more because the, the runs and RBIs are worth more than they are, relatively speaking, to other sites. And in the pitching side, the, the, some sites take away points for uh, walks and some points, the, 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 the percentage of the win is different for each site. And I know, you know, we can talk all day about the predictability of wins, uh, but, you know, it matters on certain sites where, you know, if you do get the win, it's, some sites it could be 20% of the overall points it scored. Other sites it's 10%. Right. So how much you care about the win can matter from site to site to site as well. And in fact, how much you care about each and every uh, aspect of it. Uh, the site, I don't want to name any names, but the site I play, I, I've perceived from the scoring that it really does benefit you to have power guys because a home run is a is a f- really significant event in the game for that player. And uh, and gosh, I've, I've been watching in the leagues I play that, especially the bigger ones, where, where you're talking about fifty or 60,000 entries, that the uh, the guy who wins or the owner who wins almost always has happens to have anybody who had two home runs in a game. It's a two home run game is just this this completely upsetting black swan type event. That uh, if you happen to roster a guy who hits two home runs in a game, um, it's really tough to catch up with him if you don't have that. That's more for the the tournaments. It, ironic, not so much ironically, but if you wanted to do one of the, we've talked about of the double ups or the 50-50s, sometimes getting a guy that steals is actually a safer bet just because if they, you know, if a, if, if, El, you know, I've used him before, if Alcides Escobar goes one for four and if Johnny Peralta goes one for four, there's a better chance that Alcides Escobar also got a steal. So he, it might be a better play if, if you're just trying to, get something out of the player, you know, the the variance. Uh, you're not looking for that home run, <laughs> literally literally and figuratively. Right. You're just looking to get you know enough from that player to support your really, really good pitcher that day. So you know that's when you look to see how much a stolen base is worth compared to other sites. And um, uh, it's, you know, it's all, it's, it, it's, it's really, it, it, it's, it's, it gets to be complicated, uh, which is why sometimes the more, you know, we mentioned the outcomes razor. The more players that you just put in your lineup that are going to be good without really having to worry about it, then you know the the fewer players that you need to worry about getting these actual splits, and it just makes the experience a little bit easier, especially at the beginning. So, just to make sure I understand you, Todd, what you're saying is if your choice is Escobar versus Peralta down at the end of your roster in that spot for relatively low salary. You might be better off with Escobar because his chance of stealing a base is quite a bit greater than Peralta hitting a home run in any given game. If I'm trying to finish in the top half, and if I want to, you know, if I want to be, if I want to place in a fifty-fifty, yeah. If I want to win a tournament and I want to be the, you know, the number, you know, I want to cash in a large entry tournament where you know ten or twenty percent of the people cash versus a fifty-fifty where fifty percent cash, then I'm more likely to go with Peralta. Because the impact of that home run is far greater than the impact of a steal. I mean, you, like you mentioned, you get the four points for a home run, or depending on the site, and then the RBI, and then the run. And, and if there's anybody on base, you get those RBIs right. as well. Whereas the steal, you just get, you know, the point or two, whatever it is, for the steal itself. So that, you know, to me, Peralta or, you know, a power hitting player 
I'll use in the in the tournament and the stolen base guy I'm more likely to use in a cash game just because I'm just trying to get enough points to add on to my pitcher score to finish in the top half. And before I let you go, Todd, uh, all this Occam's Razor and player valuation talk, we're talking on a Friday afternoon. The podcast will be available well before the 7 p.m. Eastern start times for most games. Uh, give us a name or two of players who fit this idea of Occam's Razor for, to, for Friday night's games. Okay, with the caveat that the reason these guys are listing them are because they may or may not be in the lineup, therefore their prices are down. Uh, so with the caveat, then make sure these guys are in the lineup. Uh, a guy like Jimmy Paradis of Baltimore, who's actually been in the lineup lately, uh, hitting second for Baltimore, his salary has not yet caught up with what he's able to do. Same team, David Lowe. Um, I don't know what they're doing with Alejandro Deaza, Baltimore right now. There's no sort of consistent uh, in, or, in or out of the lineup. So when he's out, David Lowe's been in there and leading off. With the injury to Deion Navarro, that opens up an opportunity for Justin Smoke and Danny Valencia to get some extra playing time. So if either of those guys is in the lineup, uh, Shane Victorino is nicked up. There's a surprise. <laughs> uh, Alan Craig is potentially picking up some extra bats. And all these guys, their salaries are less than what their, you know, the basal level skill is just because they don't play right. all the time. So, uh, you know, and they, they're in parks. They're, you know, they're in good parks. You know, th- those things are added advantages, but that's who I'm looking at. Alan Craig, Smoke, and Paredes, particularly to see if they'll be in the lineup tonight. I should have asked you this before, a uh, long time ago when I first got into this uh, daily business. Stars and scrubs or spread the risk? Actually, I, I was, when, uh, when I was sort of thinking through some of the stuff that how, uh, you know, we might be talking about, um, it, it, talking about these, these OCAMs Razor, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, stars and scrubs. And, I think that the reason, you know, in traditional fantasy that we use spread the risk is the injury aspect of it. If a guy gets hurt, it's easy to replace a, you know, a $20 guy than a $40 guy. Well, in a day to day, on a daily lineup basis, you're not worried about it. Yeah, I know that, I know that Jacoby Ellsbury misses games, but right now he's healthy. Carlos Gonzalez, I know he misses games, but is it, you know, is he going to get hurt during the game? Am I not going to use him because he might get hurt during the game? You know, I don't think so. So to me, it, it, that's where the, uh, the, the, the stars and scrub comes in because they're, you know, you want, just like in a traditional fantasy, you want two types of players. You want the, the, the bang for the buck, and then you want the foundation guys that just get you points, and you're not as concerned about the return on investment. You know, no one drafts Mike Trout to, cause they think they're gonna get a profit. They draft Mike Trout cause they're gonna get a, a really nice foundation of stats. So, you know, ideally, you know, you, can you, can you put a DFS roster together with, you know, everybody with an RO, a positive ROI? Yeah, but you probably won't use up your entire salary cap. You're gonna have a couple of spots where you can just put Troy Tulowitzki in, and you don't care that his return on investment isn't that great. You can use Miguel Cabrera or Trout or Andrew McCutcheon and not worry about you know what the bang for the buck is. You just want the you just want the bang. You don't care about the buck. So to me, it is a stars and scrubs, and these Okems Razor guys are ways to get some scrubs in there, uh, so you can afford to put some of these stars in your lineup and a good pitcher as well. 
It's a very interesting thing. I wonder how many of the top players are secretly very aware of all of this and are working away feverishly behind the scenes to figure it all out. And we're, we're all racing to try to figure things out, and that's what makes it so much fun. Todd Zola, a guy who spends a lot of time figuring things out, thanks very much for joining us again. We'll talk to you again next Friday. Absolutely. We'll, we'll call it a day. All right. Todd Zola writes for BaseballHQ.com, for Ron Chandler's uh, ChandlerPark.com, for ESPN, MastersBall, FantasyAlarm.com, and as I say every week, if Todd Zola's writing, you should be reading. When we come back, we'll have our commentaries, the matchups, and master notes next on Baseball HQ Radio. And this crowd just training board at every pitch. Here it comes. A swing of this. Two strikes, ball one to Dale Mitchell. Listen to this crowd. I'll guarantee that nobody, but nobody has left this ballpark. And if somebody did manage to leave early, man, he's missing the greatest. Two strikes and a ball. Mitchell waiting. Stands deep, feet close together. Larson is ready. Gets the sign. Two strikes, ball one. Here comes the pitch. Strike three. A no-hitter. A perfect game for John Larson. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our regular Friday commentaries. Coming up, I'll have master notes. And now it's our pitcher matchup report. BaseballHQ.com has developed algorithms to determine the strength or weakness of every starting pitcher based on opponent, park, and other factors. Pitchers score from minus 5 to plus 5. We recommend pitchers with a matchup rating of plus 2 and higher, while we suggest you avoid pitchers whose matchup ratings are below 0. Here with some of this weekend's matchups is BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick. Is it too early to jump on 24-year-old Cleveland right-hander Trevor Bauer's bandwagon? Using BaseballHQ.com's exclusive pure quality start system, Bauer has three consecutive PQS dominant fives. His earned run average is only 0.95, and his whip is exactly one. He struck out 26 batters in 19 innings. But the BaseballHQ.com Pitcher Matchups tool says not so fast. 11 of those 26 strikeouts came at the expense of the Houston Astros, and they've struck out more than any other team in the majors this year. Bauer has walked 11 batters in his 19 innings. Of the balls batters have put in play against him, only 22% have gone for hits. The average hit rate is 30%. And of the runners Bowers put on base, 89% have been stranded. The average strand rate is 73%. In short, Bauer has been making early withdrawals from the bank of luck. That's why his matchup rating for a Saturday start at Detroit is only 0.68. His mound opponent is Alfredo Simon, who has a matchup rating of 119. You wouldn't want to go against Washington Nationals right-hander Steven Strasburg, would you? His matchup rating for a Saturday start in Miami is in our recommended range at 224. But he's up against someone with a bit better matchup rating of 233, someone whose home park suppresses left-handed batters' home runs by 38%, and right-handed batters' home runs by 22%. Of course, that works in Strasburg's favor, too. But in 2014, the mystery man was dominant at Marlins Park with an ERA of 3.0 and a whip of 114. He walked only 2.8 batters per nine innings and gave up just six home runs in 96 innings. But it was a different story on the road, 
where he had an ERA of 4.63, a WHIP of 1.46, walked 3.9 batters per nine innings, and allowed 10 home runs in 95.1 innings. Those facts uncovered by BaseballHQ.com's Greg Pyron in Facts and Flukes hint that we might see a surprisingly good start from Miami right-hander Tom Kohler. It isn't often that both pitchers in a matchup carry ratings in negative numbers, but that's nearly the case at Globe Life Park in Arlington on Sunday. Both starters should be avoided, and not just because the venue enhances run production by 7%, second most in the league. Rangers right-hander Nicholas Martinez has a matchup rating of 038. He's been even luckier than Bauer has been so far this season. After three starts with PQS scores of 5, 3, and 4, his hit rate is 23% and his strand rate is 95%. In 20 innings, he has walked 6 and struck out only 9. He faces the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. His 29 innings against them are more than he's thrown against any other team. And he's already had heavenly luck, including a hit rate of only 20%. The Halos left-handed Hector Santiago starts the game with a matchup rating of minus 0.08. Santiago has seen the Rangers more than any other team over the past two years, and they've liked what they've seen of him. His 2014 ERA against them in 24 innings pitched was 592. Stay away from both Santiago and Martinez. Milwaukee right-hander Mike Fires has the best matchup rating of the weekend for his Sunday start at home in Miller Park at 295. He's facing the St. Louis Cardinals, who counter with a right-hander of their own, Lance Lynn, and his matchup rating of 135. Fires burned us the last time he had the highest matchup rating, April 10, flaming out at home versus Pittsburgh by allowing five earned runs in five innings, though he did strike out eight but his two 2014 starts against the Cards resulted in a PQS 4 and a PQS 5. And in his start against them this year, he allowed only two earned runs in five and two-thirds innings, which is his best game thus far. So maybe once burned, twice shy in Milwaukee, but still the best on the board. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly commentary on baseball and fantasy baseball. I'm up in the Master Notes rotation this week, and I'd like to talk to you about daily fantasy baseball and laundry management. I'm not sure how much longer I'm going to keep playing daily fantasy baseball. I like the game. And the gambling issue? Hey, I happen to think daily games are gambling, but I also think that if I want to gamble on baseball, or horses, or cards, I should be free to go right ahead, as long as my gambling on baseball doesn't keep me from meeting my other responsibilities. Like gambling on curling. My issue is that daily fantasy is creating laundry problems. Maybe I should explain. I joined my home league more than 20 years ago because it was an American League-only format. I had been in a mixed league, and one year my ace pitcher, the Expos' Dennis Martinez, had two terrific starts back-to-back. He lowered his ratios, picked up two valuable wins, and he vaulted right to the top of the list for the National League Award for Most Valuable Mustache. In all, Martinez's two starts were just great for my roto team. Our league had mustaches as a category, so that helped. But I was miserable. You see, Martinez's two gems came against the Cincinnati Reds. And I love the Cincinnati Reds, way more than I love fantasy baseball. I've been a Reds fan since I was shorter than a Louisville slugger, 
though considerably wider even then. I left that mixed league at the end of the season, and I resolved then and there I'd never again play fantasy where I might have to root against the big red machine, even when it was more like a medium-sized red machine. I joined an AL-only league, which let me play Roto without having to worry about my players going up against the Reds. Nobody mentioned interleague play was coming. Thanks, bud. With no Reds issues to worry about, I took advice from our league's best owner, that players are just the cards we're dealt every night. We shouldn't feel any more attachment to Paul Goldschmidt or Carlos Martinez than we do to the Nine of Clubs. I bought that idea, and for many years I could root for the Reds in real baseball and for my AL players in fantasy baseball. Honoring Dennis Martinez, the whole situation was el perfecto. Then, three years ago, I joined Tout Wars, the mixed league, and thus I rejoined the problem of possibly rooting for my fantasy players against the best interests of my beloved Reds. I've managed the uneasy balance by focusing on players from the American League, the National League East and West Divisions, and of course where I could from the Reds themselves. But daily games, with their relentless focus on matchups, have been a fresh source of nagging and conflict, kind of like a second marriage. Take for example the tout daily game of Friday, April 22nd. Dispassionate planning would mean rostering hitters against the Diamondbacks' Josh Colmenter, who this year has had two PQS disasters in three starts, a 340-ish ERA, 140-ish whip, just seven strikeouts in 19 innings, a paltry 3.4 K per nine dominance rate, and he's had real trouble with left-handed hitters, 952 OPS against. As well, the game is at Chase Field. It's a great hitter's park, so any sensible planner should at least be thinking about stacking left-handed hitters from the Diamondbacks' opponent. But Arizona's opponents on Friday are the Pirates. And I can't roster the Pirates, because I can't root for Pirates. The Pirates are a major obstacle to the Reds reaching the playoffs. For me, the Reds are like shipping off the east coast of Africa, and that makes Pirates the enemy. I want the Pirates to lose. But while I must ignore Pirates hitters, I expect many of my daily game opponents will not. In the last three full seasons, Neil Walker has an 820 OPS against right-handed pitchers. Pedro Alvarez is at 819. Gregory Polanco is over 700. So even though I have Alvarez on my tout mix team, there will be no Pirates for me. Now, I guess I could roster some Reds, and indeed there's the nagging feeling that loyalty compels me to do just that. If I don't, I feel like I'm conceding I don't believe they're going to do well. This, by the way, is the argument against Pete Rose's assertion that he never bet the Reds to lose. But in a way, he did bet the Reds to lose whenever he didn't bet them to win. I don't want to be in that position and kibosh my chances of getting into the Hall of Fame. But I don't want to roster Reds hitters either because their mound opponent on April 22nd is the Cubs ace John Lester. So here we have the core of the laundry paradox. My rooting interest says I should take Reds hitters and avoid Pirates. But it makes far more tactical sense to avoid the Reds hitters. And yeah, roster Pirates. Similarly, I like the Boston hitters against Baltimore, especially since I have Hanley Ramirez in my AL-only league. But the O's pitcher that night is Miguel Gonzalez. Yes, I know, not a Reds pitcher, but a pitcher who is on my tout mixed roster. And as the signs say down at the Flamingo Massage Parlor, herein lies the rub. Playing daily fantasy baseball makes it all but impossible to find players without creating some kind of rooting conflict. I know a lot of guys who have no difficulty keeping all of this separate, but I can't. 
and I end up not enjoying baseball, real or fantasy, quite as much as I think I should. That's my laundry problem. I enjoy the daily game enough that I want to keep playing, especially that Tout Wars once a week game every Friday, but I'm not sure how long I can keep it up after that. In the meantime, on nights when I have entered the daily games, I think I might just do without watching baseball or following it online. I'll leave the laundry for later, and I'll take my wife out for a nice dinner instead. If I'm going to give myself heartburn, I might as well enjoy it. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt of BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday by signing up for the Baseball HQ free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April 24th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 20 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our regular guest for the Friday edition of our show, Todd Zola, and our other contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our pitcher matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. And I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And more importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Tuesday when our expert guest will be MLB.com VP of Stats, Corey Schwartz. That's the next edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.